in the ever-shifting water of the river of this life I was searing, seeking comfort I was wrestling waves to find A boulder I could cling to A stone to hold me fast Where I might let the fretful water of the river So I found an anchor, a blessed resting place, a trusty rock I called my Savior, but there I would be safe from the river and its dangers, and I proclaimed my rock divine, and I pray to it, protect me, and the rock replied. God is a river, not just a stone. God is a wild raging rapids and a slow meandering flow. God is a deep and narrow passage and a peaceful sandy shoal. God is a river swimmer. Still I clung to my rock tightly with conviction in my arms Never looking at the stream to keep my mind from thoughts of harm But the river kept on coming, kept on tugging at my legs Until at last my fingers faltered and I was swept away So I'm going with the flow now, these relentless twists and bends, acclimating to the motion and a sense of being led. And this river's like my body, now it carries me along through the ever-changing scenes and by the rocks that sing this song God is a river not just a stone God is a wild raging rapids and a slow meandering flow God is a deep and narrow passage and a peaceful sandy shoal God is a river swimmer All right, if you'll turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, we will pick up to do some exposition of the passage on prayer. Um, This is not a 
very involved discussion of prayer in Matthew chapter 6, but it's where Jesus introduces the concept of prayer to his disciples and gives the foundation for it. So those are the things that we'll be looking at. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 15, starting with page, well, that's page 684 in your pew Bible, if that's the one you have, uh, are using Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, if that's how you're finding it. And this is part of what is called the Sermon on the Mount. Let's just uh, do a little backtrack here to the first of the chapter, 6 verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now Jesus is using this to introduce the subject of prayer. And this background is important because to the people of Israel, their religious life has become a very part, uh, integrated part of their public life. And I think many people around the world have lived in a context like that. If you lived in a Muslim country, for example, you would hear the call to prayer five times a day, and everybody stops to pray. And uh, they, this is not a question. It's not a matter of some people pray and some people don't pray. And this was certainly the context text there. And there was a time, and there are certain places, geographically possibly, or certain areas even in our own country, where it's just considered normative. Prayer in public schools, for example, or public events. Some cases they still are. Our own state of Oregon, every session uh, is started with a prayer, by, mostly by local pastors taking turns at it. Uh, and in Congress and the Supreme Court in the country, it's still much part of the tradition. United States branches, the military branches, all have chaplains, and there are prayer events. Most of the people really appreciate it, and some people don't, and uh, usually they're allowed to skip if they don't want. So public prayer is a part of public life most places. There are certainly exceptions to that, and most people in history have lived with public prayer being a part of their lives, their community lives, and therein lies the problem. The more normative it is, the more routine it becomes and the more opportunity for people to use that as a way of demonstrating their superiority and their righteousness by prayer and giving and all of these things being noted. This was an issue sometimes in our public life with the giving. You've probably noticed that there's sometimes a lot of media attention giving to certain charitable Acts, and uh, you probably know that most charitable acts take place without anybody noticing them. And I think that the more one is a follower of Jesus, the more likely they are to try to avoid getting their name on their public works, their good works, and their good deeds, because this is what Je- this is what it's based on. Jesus Himself advocated that we not try to draw attention to ourselves when we're claiming to be serving God and serving other people. 
there's a drawback to that problem and to that uh, public recognition. Sometimes it's encouraging, uh, but it's also got a drawback of uh, making the whole process uh, somewhat hypocritical. Motives can be wrong and are encouraged to be wrong when there's rewards to be gotten that have nothing to do with the generosity. So that's the background that Jesus is using. Their own culture had become that way. The Pharisees were well known for this, and that's why he brings them up. They actually, in some cases, blew horns to show that they had dropped money into the coffers. And um, that's not just a figure of speech, a metaphor. It actually happened in some cases. So he goes on then and brings up the subject of prayer. In verse 5, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Let me say a few things about this background information that he's giving here about specific to prayer. Uh, Here he's suggesting that not that it's inappropriate to pray in public uh, or that it's inappropriate to pray pray out loud in a group, but he's suggesting that the prayer to God needs to be consistent with the context. When we pray in a group here, if we broadcast that prayer on a speaker outside, you would be in the context that he's talking about here. And I think that's one of the problems with televised ministries, worship service, uh, those sort of things. It's always made me a little uncomfortable when the pastor goes to prayer with the people there and then the TV cameras are on him. Does this change anything? I think it changes something. I have a personal experience with that. When I was living in Colorado, Marjorie and I were married and I was working as a truck driver there and my boss finally convinced us to try their church. And it was on television. It was a big church on television. And in those days, being on television in 14 states in the prairie states was a big deal. It was a big church, and uh, it was on television. But those cameras really made me self-conscious. When I saw those big things rolling down the aisle, and uh, I decided at one point to come to Christ and uh, be saved at the invitation. And so I went up and uh, got within 20 feet of that pastor, and he had TV makeup on. And I turned right around and walked back the other way. I said, I'm not talking to any man with makeup on. And, uh, <laughs> and then I had to, it had to be explained to me that if you're on television under the hot cameras, then you have makeup on, and uh, that's a little different. So that was just an experience with that, but it always did make me feel a little uncomfortable when TV cameras are rolling up and down the aisles and, and zeroing in on people sitting there praying and laughing at the preacher's jokes, and, 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 and it's just kind of fascinating to watch the dynamics because the whole presentation becomes about the camera. And I don't think you can avoid that. So what Jesus is saying, that there's plenty of room to talk publicly about God, but let's make 
the context control the presentation. I think that's one of the reasons why certain evangelistic crusades did so well. Billy Graham's crusades, talking back in history a little bit now, but Billy Graham's crusades, everything about it was geared toward a public outward communication. There was no pretense about this being about just a bunch of us Christians here praying and talking to each other. It was presented correctly because it was geared toward a public presentation and not just looking in to see what goes on in secret. Here is what Jesus is suggesting. The preponderance of your prayer life needs to be just between you and God. If it isn't, you've got a problem. And I would suggest there are many things that fit into this category. Your relationship with your husband or wife is kind of like this, don't you think? I know that there are people who only communicate with each other when there are witnesses present. I have heard about this. I've seen this in action. Not in my house, but I've seen it and heard, about, heard of it uh, in counseling situations where when there's nobody around to notice, they treat each other like enemies. And they don't talk to each other. They don't do anything. If the preponderance of your relationship as a husband and wife is not something you do in private, you don't have a marriage. If that's all for public show, you've got a problem. You don't even have a marriage. And that's what he's suggesting in regard to the prayer. If you really want to be talking to God, then you need to learn how to talk to God in private and don't worry about the show. And he says in verse 7, don't be like the pagans and their babbling. Well, that's not so easy to, uh, that's not so complicated really what he's talking about. You may know that in some versions of prayer, there's even prayer wheels where people put their prayers on a wheel and then it just, wind just blows it. And every time it goes around, that's another prayer. And it adds up. And people feel this way. Sometimes Christians even feel this way. That if you pray enough and get enough people praying, God has to respond. And I've used this illustration before, uh, but I want to put it in here because this is what, where the context, the teaching comes from. That uh, later on Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, then I'm, in a, uh, I'm there and I will hear your prayer. Uh, does it... Does God listen better if there's a thousand people praying or ten thousand? If somebody important gets sick and they put out the word and everybody goes around, even puts signs on their on their church billboards, pray for such and such important person. He's sick. Does God really respond to the number of prayers like a democracy? Or like the pagans, we have sometimes have this feeling that if, the more people we get praying, the more we're going to push God over the edge, and he has to do what we say because we got the boats now to fire him if he doesn't give us what we want. And Jesus is suggesting private prayer. Or if it has to do with the family, two or three people is where the power is because it's God we're talking about here. That's where the power is, not how many votes you get, and force God's hand because you got more votes than the other entertainer got. And so now God has to do it. And Jesus is suggesting that don't be like the pain. So he gives some things not to do that the world around us may value or do frequently. 
And he says in verse 9, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then verse 14 is a necessary part of this. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now why does he add that in this teaching? He does this where he teaches this is recorded in Luke as well. I think there's an important point being made here by Jesus. The basis of your relationship with God and your effectiveness as prayer is your own relationship with God. If you have an attitude of you deserve things, good stuff, and, and uh, you deserve to be forgiven, and then you haven't really met God yet. So you're talking to the judge behind the bench or some kind of foreigner, but you're not really talking to God. You have no relationship with him because everybody with a genuine relationship with God knows that it's based on grace and God's forgiveness of us. So this is a challenge to us that if you have trouble forgiving other people, and people do have different degrees of difficulty in this matter, but if you can't forgive other people when it's appropriate to forgive them, then you got a problem. You probably are not forgiven by God. Because once you understand that your standing with God is based on grace, and his forgiveness, and what Jesus did for you voluntarily, once you understand that, once you get that, and you know that that's the basis of your relationship with God, now you know the God that he's talking about here. Because if you don't have that kind of relationship with God based on grace, then your prayer isn't going anywhere anyway. That's a problem. God may choose to do things uh, for you, but you're not talking to your Father in heaven unless it's based on grace and forgiveness. Without that, you're talking to a wall or a crucifix or something, and it's not really prayer to our Father in heaven. And let me just say about our Father in heaven that it's important to understand that he introduces this, well, this is the beginning of his teaching about the Trinity, all right, he develops this more in John chapter 13, 14, and 15 about prayer. And that's where he says, whatever you pray in my name to the Father will be given to you. There's further development on the subject of prayer. But I think that's important for us to understand what we're doing in the concept form when we pray. So I want to go through this article with you. I put together an article called Understanding Prayer. It's on the back side of your insert here. Understanding prayer. Boundaries. The first rule of any good communication is respect for the personal space and identity of the one you're talking to. The God of the Bible is not just a force to be manipulated or ordered around. Neither is he Santa Claus handing out toys. And he isn't a Grinch who needs to be sued before giving in. The title and role of Father means that God wants the best for us. That he knows what's going on and that he's approachable. 
but it also means that he can say no and that he shouldn't be disrespected. Our standing before the Father is based on our relationship with his son Jesus. God gets to choose the door through which we enter his presence. He chose faith in his son Jesus as the door to his house. And Jesus' name is not a magic word formula, but the basis of our relationship with God, hence the basis of effective and personal communication. Coming to God in Jesus' name tells him we understand grace, so no demands, that we care about his values, so no immoral requests, and that we share his mission, so not just selfish prayers. Faith is our belief that God cares and that he has the power to act. In the Bible, faith is always in the person rather than just the outcome or desired result. We believe that God wants to respond to our requests even though he knows our needs already. We believe that God has the power to change things, but that he also has the wisdom and goodness to use that power only for good. We believe that God loves us and has our best interests at heart. Whether his answer to a request is yes or no, or something else entirely. Communication takes two. If God is all-knowing, omniscient, then he's not ignorant of our circumstances, feelings, or thoughts. He wants us to articulate our needs and thinking so we can be partners with him in working it out, and so we can have fellowship with him, not just submission. Healthy communication involves listening as well as talking, letting God speak to our minds and hearts while we tell him what's on our minds makes it a true relationship and telling him what we think and feel worship, thanksgiving, puzzlements, etc. is every bit as important as asking for things make mention of this that in the prayer itself when Jesus teaching, teaches them he's not teaching a formula now the Lord's prayer has come down as a formula through the ages of Christianity, Christian history, and unfortunately it has become exactly what Jesus warned him not to do, just something to repeat without thought or some religious activity that has its own power. Some of you may have grown up using the Lord's Prayer as part of your worship time. Uh, some of you maybe not, uh, new to you, but this is Jesus teaching in concept what prayer should be. And he's talking about speaking to God the Father, who you're talking to. He speaks about, uh, hallowed be your name, respect his place, and your kingdom come. God, God's will and God's ways. And then give us our daily bread, dependence on him. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Ask for forgiveness for the sins that are wrecking your life and wrecking your relationship with God and other people. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In other words, we need an ongoing relationship with you, God, in order to, uh, to carry on our lives. The formula part of prayer, I think, is not just formal prayer forms. I, some of you may have been afraid of praying uh, out loud, uh, in a, even in a small group. Um, I know in my own experience, I grew up in a very formal um, Dutch Reformed. It was, uh, at that time anyway, it was a very formal uh, version of Christianity. And I went away from that as a young man to nothing at all until I came back to Christ. But it was interesting, the opposite types of uh, formulation about prayer that tends to scare people off unless they're part of the in crowd. 
in the context I grew up in, uh, nobody ever prayed without using um, Shakespearean language. The thou and thee and very formal language. I mean, you'd be talking along and then somebody would say, let's pray, and they'd turn into, uh, into Shakespeare, I guess, or somebody like that. And King James language, uh, the Bible language. And it was okay. I don't have any problem with that. And I hear people pray that way to this day, and I think it's perfectly legitimate. But I think the problem with it is that it feels not real to the people around you, children especially, that God is off over there and you use some sort of gobbledygook to communicate with them. It's not a real communication. You switch languages when you speak. And that's my next exposure to it. It was in a context in which speaking in tongues was considered real prayer, while regular prayer was for lesser beings. If you really want to pray, you've got to speak in tongues. And then you get this feeling that if I'm not in that in crowd, I can't pray either. And there are people who pray in a certain position. I knew a guy one time, a pastor, who insisted on praying with his hands lifted up and his eyes up. Uh, if you want to pray that way, I don't think it's any problem. But he says that was the biblical way to pray. And on your knees, some people pray on their knees. That's good, pray on your knees. But it's okay to not be on your knees when you pray. There's a lot of praying going on in the Bible in different positions. That's not what the Bible teaches about prayer either. How you speak is not how the Bible teaches about prayer. It's the content and the attitude you bring to it. Just talk to God. He knows how you talk. You can't fool him. You can't fool him like some other context may motivate you to want to fool people around you and this is what Jesus is telling them to do you are approaching the bench so to speak if you go to a court if you want to talk to the judge you do have to remember that that's a judge most judges don't want you to speak in some sort of legalese if you're going to talk to them the lawyer will do that they get paid to do that you talk to the judge I have a good friend who recently died, was a superior court judge for about 40 years, and, um, and he never wanted anybody to speak to him in that way. And he didn't want that title used outside of that courtroom, but even in the courtroom. But he showed up at church as an older man, a new believer. It was a great experience to have a guy like that around. He served on our board one, uh, for several years, and anytime something got in a disagreement, he would say something and everybody would just say, Oh, okay, the judge has spoken. And uh, that's uh, handy to have around sometimes. But uh, nevertheless, formal speech with God isn't required, but respect is, remembering who you're talking to. Not just in showing respect, but in believing that he can do something about it because he's the God of the universe. He's not as limited as you are. Otherwise, why pray at all if he's as puny as you are, as limited in powers as you are. Why bother? You wouldn't pray to me, I hope. You wouldn't pray to some other human, you'd pray to God. That's what prayer really is about. Let's look at some points here, takeaways for life, and um, make some applications, some things to work on during the week. Number one, just be real and honest with God, but let him take you deeper than the shopping trip level. One of the problems of having a casual 
way of praying tends to be that people just leave it on the surfacey level. It's interesting that the Lord's Prayer and much of the teaching that comes from Jesus himself about prayer is actually quite profoundly theological. In John 13, 14, and 15, when he teaches on prayer, he does an entire development of the Trinity concept. You're speaking to the Father by means of the Holy Spirit through the Son. And that's a complete relationship with God that we can't get our hands on otherwise with just the abstract God behind the bench uh, sort of approach, the creator of the universe. And this, our Father who art in heaven and so on, on the parts of this Lord's Prayer. If you stop and think about these, they really don't say a lot in terms of prayer in and of themselves, but each, each line hits on a concept, a whole concept of relationship, dependency on God, who God is, and all of these kind of things. And, and I, sometimes I think it's a little bit perilous to... Uh, to recommend just talk to God in private and even in public the way you normally talk because that leads some people to believe that well you just do trivia not trivia you don't need a special language to speak about subjects that are deeper than trivia number two in the takeaways speaking or writing is how humans get thoughts and feelings into the open and clarified this is true communication. I have mentioned this before. I just, uh, Marjorie and I have just celebrated our anniversary, wedding anniversary. And uh, she is the only girl I've ever dated. And I'm the only boy she ever dated. I was 16 and she was 15 in high school. I picked her out of the school annual. I had never met her before. But I did like her picture. And so I called her. And that first date was a sign of things to come. I said about three words all night, and she said about 30,000 words all night. And we concluded, we're a match. You've got to have one to listen and one to talk. And this is how it works, right? And that was a good match. And she says it's the other way around now, but probably not true. But if you don't communicate... This is the breakdown of many marriages. It's the breakdown of fellowship in churches. People don't communicate and they don't want to. That's none of your business. Well, if it's none of my business, what are we doing here? You don't, if you don't talk, if you don't say what's going on with your day, your life, your emotional struggles, the person you're with soon concludes you don't care or trust them. They're not part of your life. Because usually they hear you talking to other people. Therein lies the problem. They know you know how to communicate. They just know you don't want to communicate with them. And that is a message loud and clear. Communicate with others but not with them. But let's say you do have a problem of communicating. Speaking and writing are good ways of doing it. This is why Jesus advocates a prayer closet where the term comes from, the old English expression that he used there, was go into your closet to pray, a prayer closet. Then you can talk out loud. You can talk out loud to God, and if it helps you get your ideas out, not just in your head, that's a great thing to do. You can pretend to be talking on your cell phone if you want. Uh, I was at a train station here recently, and 
big crowd was sitting around all looking at one guy. And he was sitting there talking out loud, just like out to the air. And the person next to me said, is that guy on a cell phone with a headset or something? And I said, I don't know. I'll go look. So I went and walked all around him, and he wasn't. He was just talking. That's pretty cool. Because you can pray or be mentally insane, and nobody knows whether you're on your cell phone or not. I think it's a great invention. In fact, 98% of all that goes on on the cell phone anyway is borderline insanity or nothingness. So uh, there you go. If you got a, here's, it's a good experiment. If you're having trouble with your prayer life, just don't turn your phone on but put it up to your ear and start talking to God. Pretend he's on the other line, on the other end of the line. It works. I have uh, spent many hours in coffee shops with a uh, legal pad, notebook, and a pen. Praying. But not talking out loud. Writing my prayer. I write. And so God, and, I, and it dawned on me one day, God can read. I bet he's smart enough to read. So if I write my thoughts on paper, it does help me to articulate. But I just started out by saying, dear God. Well, I don't use that term, but I just say, Lord or Father. And you know what? It works. It's prayer. And it helps me get thoughts out when I can't get them out in any other way. Because if you're like me, you probably, if you just... If you pray all by yourself with nothing else to do, you soon find yourself thinking about something else. Your car or your job or whatever else or what that nasty person said to you just yesterday and all these kind of things and your prayer goes gone in a, in a minute. So just use some disciplines. Number three then, bring discipline to your prayer life as needed but not as a substitute for regular interaction with God. You know, it's very difficult to be in church sometimes and not be guilt-tripped about something. Sometimes it's, well, we don't pray enough. My answer to that is, don't we? Who doesn't pray enough? Is there ever enough? We don't worship enough. We don't pray enough. We don't serve enough. We don't give enough. I don't know if that's true. A lot of people like to stay away from church because they're just tired of the guilt load. Whatever happened to grace and God and relationship with God, they're tired of the guilt load. Me too. I don't know if you don't pray enough, do you? I do very little formal praying myself. But I walk and talk with God all the time. Is God disappointed in my prayer life? Not according to him. He's happy about that. When I drive my car... Once in a while, I say things about the other drivers, but then I remember that I was talking to God and fix it and uh, that sort of thing. But uh, I don't know. If the discipline is needed to do it at 4 in the morning every day till 5, do it. But if you don't need to, I'm not going to tell you to. When I was in Bible college in uh, Saskatchewan, Canada. We had visiting missionaries and preachers come through and challenge us to live godly lives, sanctified lives. And about once a week, one of them would tell us to get up earlier and pray. And if one hour isn't enough, two hours, three hours, I got so much to do, I need four hours of prayer. And one poor guy actually believed these guys 
And one day the paddy wagon had to come and pick him up. He kept moving his schedule up until he wasn't getting any sleep. And he went, literally, went crazy because he was guilt-tripped into praying more and more hours of the day. And he went nuts. I think it's possible to put too much emphasis on prayer. I know you're not supposed to say that in church. You're supposed to walk away with a big guilty load. But not here. We know Jesus in this place. You're not supposed to make the disciplines anything more than the disciplines. They're tools to teach us how to think that way. And once you've learned how to think that way, you don't have to go through boot camp anymore. You don't have to be rigid about these things anymore. They're disciplines like everything else that are there to teach you how to incorporate it into your life. And you don't have to be one of those people who feels like you're letting God down. For me, four o'clock in the morning would be no problem. It's been years since I've still been sleeping at four o'clock in the morning. But I don't do that because I have a regimen that I get up and pray X number of hours. I do that because that's my sleep pattern. And that's okay. Good time for me and God. I get three or four hours of total quiet in my house. And I, that's good. I miss that in any other context. Uh, but if that's not working for you, God doesn't want you to do it. Just incorporate God into your life and make it part of your life. Point four, be thankful that you don't always get what you want. And don't be a baby about it either. Have you ever heard anybody say, my mama burnt the biscuits one time and I have never eaten since. Or I had a, I had a car that I didn't like so I have never driven since. Or I had a bad experience in church one time so I never went again. Or I didn't get what I want from God when I prayed, so I'm not praying no more. Oh, what a, what a wimp, what a baby. I know in in our society we're kind of conditioned to expect mommy to take care of everything. Maybe mommy's the government, but still mommy's supposed to take care of everything. I made that commitment, but now mommy's supposed to do it. Pay off my college loans, and mommy's supposed to do it. Mommy, you do it. I want to play with my toys, and I'm only 35. You know that that is a growing attitude in our society, especially in Oregon. Oregon, we're well known for that. We're we're the uh, medical center of Peter Pan syndrome. That, uh, in which uh, nobody wants to grow up. We want mommy to do it so we can play. And we want mommy government to do it if we can't. Our own mommies are already gone. And if God doesn't answer our prayers and give me stuff, I'm not praying anymore. Well, maybe God is telling you no so you can grow up a little bit. Kind of like parents need to do with their kids sometimes. No, not now. Not ever, no, and you can just go out and earn it yourself if you wanted. What? Earn it myself? Oh, no, that's mean. I'm never talking to you again, Mommy. That's not going to happen with God. He's not a fool. He cares about you. He knows how to say no. Part of our growth is 
God saying no. You know that, right? From real life. Number five, check that you're plugged into the power source and that you have the right IP address. IP address, of course, relates to the uh, numbers and dots in the in the technical world of computers, which includes cell phones. Your cell phone has an IP address too. So, but you're not going to communicate unless you got the right address. You got to know God. You got to be in touch with God, or it's not going to work. Let me read to you the um, just as a closing comment, the quote from Max Lucado, and it's his. Uh, the worship quote that was up there at the beginning of the service. Our prayers may be awkward. Our attempts may be feeble. But since the power of prayer is in the one who hears it and not in the one who says it, our prayers do make a difference. So, how's your prayer life? Maybe it's great. Maybe it's even better than it needs to be. I don't know. But maybe it isn't. So this is a challenge to just let God show you what he likes out of this relationship that he's got with you and wants to have with you. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to talk to you. And um, because I am in this position, I'm speaking on behalf of Kingwood Bible Church right now. We would like you to communicate with us directly with power. We want to sense your presence. We want to be led by you. We want you to show us how to make you an integrated part of our lives as individuals and as a church. Lead us and guide us and we'll just stay open. It's by grace that we get to know you and it's by grace that we get to walk with you and hear you. And so show us how to do that to appreciate you and enjoy you in our daily lives because you, Father, love us and you have the power to do something about the things in our lives. We give them to you, including our attitudes and spirits. In Jesus' name, amen.